It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello there. Welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon. This week... More than 100 neuroscientists are calling a leading theory of consciousness pseudoscience. So we'll take another look at integrated information theory. Plus, it's a big week for little things in our solar system. Jellyfish with no brains still seem to learn. And a reverse vaccine can reset your immune system's memory, which could be good news for people with autoimmune conditions. But first things first, Chelsea, we need to talk about thylacines. Researchers are reporting the first case of RNA ever being extracted from an extinct animal which may start to tell us more about how these animals lived in their environment when they were alive. That's really huge news. Thylacines are those kind of cute little Tasmanian tigers, right? Yeah, and yeah, I think they're pretty cute too. Unfortunately, they're dead now. Uh, they were large carnivorous marsupials that lived on both the Australian mainland and Tasmania, though they disappeared from Australia well before they actually went extinct in the 1900s. There's some very old photos of the last thylacines in zoos. You can see that they're very like tall, slender, kind of fox-faced animals with these bold black stripes down their backs and long skinny tails. The largest ones were as big as wolves, standing at almost a meter tall. So maybe not so little. Yeah, not so little. <laughs> But now, so now we've extracted RNA from one, which again would be huge. But I'm curious, why is this only happening now when we've been extracting DNA for so long? Yeah, not only have we been extracting DNA for a long time, but we've also gotten so good at extracting even very ancient DNA that we can do it for specimens that are over a million years old. And the thylacine sample in question is really only about 130 years dead. So mostly it's a testament to how fragile RNA is. DNA is a very stable molecule, but RNA, outside living cells, breaks up into small fragments very quickly. Researchers think this usually happens even within minutes. So in recent years, they've been exploring extracting ancient RNA from various sources, and they've actually had some success, especially in frozen permafrost environments. So a team looked at a mummified thylacine specimen that's been at the Stockholm Natural History Museum in Sweden, and they took several samples of its muscle and skin tissues. And after adapting some modern techniques that are usually used on fresher samples, they did report finding millions of intact RNA sequences. What will this tell us that DNA can't? You know, both molecules encode genetic information, but I think they'd probably give us different pictures. Yeah, exactly right. The DNA is this very straightforward recipe for how to build a thylacine cell by cell. But RNA translates and applies the recipe in each individual cell. So, for example, while DNA might include instructions for how to make a muscle fiber, 
RNA does all the work of differentiating the specific kinds of muscle fibers you need. Is this muscle going to have the tools for moving quickly, like the fast-acting ones in our arms and legs, or more slowly, like the ones in our backs? So then having the RNA for thylacines or any other extinct animal could tell us a lot more than we currently know about the environmental stresses they dealt with and how they actually used their genetic potential in life. And the thing that I find really cool is that we might even be able to learn about the kinds of pathogens that animals like thylacines interacted with when they were alive. Uh, the researchers also found some RNA from viruses in their samples. And since disease is such a huge shaper of how animals move through the world, RNA from viruses that interacted with extinct species would allow us to potentially study that aspect as well. You know, obviously, thylacines are one of the more recently deceased species. So I'm interested to see how well attempts to extract RNA from something much older might go. And this also makes me think about whether RNA from extinct animals could be used to bring them back. You know, there are some pretty mm -hmm. concerted efforts to do that in a few species now. And, you know, plenty of really valid concerns about whether that's even something we should attempt particularly because we'd be bringing back animals to an environment they probably aren't well suited for. But so would salvaging RNA bring any of those efforts closer to fruition? It very much could, though one of the researchers behind this work did stress that while de-extinction wasn't a motivation for his research, he does think that RNA would be mandatory even for any successful de-extinction effort. There's so much more to how an animal exists in the world than what the genome alone can tell us, and having a nuanced understanding of their gene expression would be very important if we wanted to bring back, you know, quaggas or mammoths or passenger pigeons in a way that lets them thrive, which, as you again mentioned, comes with all of these ethical concerns and considerations as well. We'll link to the full story from Gene Timmons in our show notes. Back in July, we talked about intriguing new data that might help us test one of the theories about the source of consciousness. It's one of the trickiest questions in science, how our physical bodies produce the subjective sensory experiences that they do. But now the same theory is being criticized by an array of leading neuroscientists who are calling it pseudoscience. Medical reporter Claire Wilson is back to help us think it all through. Hey, Claire. Hello. So can you give us a refresher course on the theory that's being called into question in the moment? Oh, by all means. So this is the theory called Integrated Information Theory, or IIT. Now, this might seem strange because it originated not from studying the brain, but from considering patterns of connections in networks, which could be any kind of a network. It could be a brain or it could be, you know, a computer. IIT says that any such network has a higher level of consciousness if it is more densely interconnected, so that the interactions between each point or node within the network yields more information than if the same system is reduced to its component parts. Now, this theory also predicts that you, you can theoretically calculate a value for the level of consciousness called phi, if you know a network's structure and function. But, big but, that calculation process gets practically impossible with anything more than about 10 nodes. So calculating <laughs> phi for the human brain is kind of out of the question for now. Yeah, we've got a few more than 10, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, good question, because we actually don't even really know what should we be considering each neuron as a node, maybe oh. even each synapse. But anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so then tell us, what's this argument about? 
All right. So an open letter has been signed by 124 neuroscientists, including pioneers in brain imaging and consciousness research. And they say the core ideas of IIT have not yet been empirically tested. And they say it's even impossible to test them. So that makes it a pseudoscience. And they also have a problem with the fact that many journalists, including me, I should admit, we describe IIT as a leading theory or a major theory about consciousness. So the letter writers say you, you shouldn't do that unless the theory actually starts to get some empirical evidence behind it. As far as they're concerned, in comparison to theories of consciousness, that you know they're, they're more based, they start with data from research on the brain. IIT lacks this kind of evidence that would give it that kind of standing. All right, that, that makes a lot of sense that they would be coming in that direction. But you know, are they right to go so far as to call IIT pseudoscience? Uh, well, that's uh, the thing that I find a bit funny about all this. I mean, there is no single definition of pseudoscience either. Philosophers have <laughs> debated this for, uh, for a while. Now, I wasn't able to get any comment from Giulio Tononi, the scientist who came up with IIT. Other people I've spoken with say IIT is is on a much better footing than the things that we would normally describe as a pseudoscience, like astrology or homeopathy. So there's still valuable research happening in the drive to, to explore IIT, and it can potentially bring tools that might help us to understand the brain and mind, even if so far there hasn't yet been an aha moment of confirmation. And you've talked before on this podcast about how consciousness is considered the hard problem, uh, in quotes, of neuroscience. Mm. If IIT is less exciting than it might have seemed as an answer to that problem, what are you know some of the other theories that might better help us understand consciousness? Okay, well, I have to mention here the global workspace theory of consciousness, which is another leading contender, if I can say that. So that has been developed much more by looking at what we're actually seeing going on in the brain. It comes from the perspective of looking at how sensory information, like what we can see, how that enters consciousness. Vision is the most studied of all the senses, so it's it's been tested more on vision. Mm -hmm. And Global Workspace says that our brains start processing visual information at an unconscious level in small kind of discrete areas of the brain. And only when that information spreads across broader areas does it kind of burst into our consciousness. It does seem to be looking at consciousness in a different way. Are these two theories mutually exclusive from each other? So in my opinion, not necessarily. You can imagine some versions of both of them still kind of being uh, or having some value to them or some truth to them. Although recently, supporters of the two theories did collaborate and coming up with some experiments based on looking at brain scans as people do various cognitive tasks. And each group made predictions about what results you would see based on their own theory and their predictions were different. So to that extent, they kind of are mutually exclusive. Well, that's really incredible. But what happened? What were the results? Aha. So uh, you're <laughs> hoping here, I can tell, for the answer to consciousness. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we should have a drum roll or something. Can we please, you know, get excited here? I'm afraid the results were there was partial support for both theories. <laughs> of course. Well, I'm that sorry. is why we call it the hard problem, isn't it? Well, good point. So, yes. Yeah, so it, it, we've not cracked it yet. 
When you're done listening to all the cool stuff we have to tell you about, might we suggest you keep listening to our feed? This week's Culture Lab features an extremely fun interview with the science fiction author John Scalzi, whose new book, Starter Villain, is a somewhat plausible and definitely hilarious look at the difficulties of being a real-life supervillain, complete with volcano lairs, sentient dolphins, and, as always, space lasers. And if you want something a bit more realistic, Leia Crane and I are going to fix Venus once and for all on Dead Planet Society. Billions of years ago, Venus fell victim to a runaway greenhouse effect that makes it extremely unpleasant, despite being very Earth-like in other important ways. But what if it was actually kind of nice there? The gravity of Venus is 82% the gravity of Earth. It's not much off the size of Earth. The horizon would be a sensible distance away. We would be able to live there and everyone would be a little more athletic. As a first step, Venus is going to be an easier target to terraform and will leave you with a much, much more Earth-like world. That's coming up next Tuesday, right here in the New Scientist podcast feed. And as always, if you like any or even some of the great stories we're bringing you from the serious to the silly, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps the algorithm share our work with even more hungry listeners like you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And speaking of space reporter Leia Crane, she's here right now with an update on some of the smaller bodies in the solar system, namely two objects from the far-off Kuiper belt that may be warmer than we thought they ought to be. Hey, Leia. Hello. All right, so introduce us to the characters here. Who are we talking about? So we're talking about two dwarf planets called Eris and Makemake, and they're in the Kuiper belt, which is way out past Neptune. Eris is a little bigger than Pluto, and Makemake is a little smaller than Pluto, but they're both these sort of small, icy worlds. Small, cute, icy. So when we talk about where they came from, you know, what they're doing, what is the existing theory about how Kuiper Belt objects like Eris and Makemake got here? You know, how were they formed? How long have they been around? All of that. Basically, Kuiper Belt objects or KBOs are the crumbs left over from the formation of the solar system. So if you think of the asteroid belt as being made up of lots of big rocks left over after the planets formed, the Kuiper belt is the same but icy. 
And because they're so far away from the sun, they get very little light. You'd expect them to have stayed basically the same since they formed. Yeah, but as you've been writing about, there's something weird going on, right? Which seems to be happening a lot as we turn JWST to look at things we thought we understood. Yeah, we basically understand nothing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like Eris and Makemake haven't actually stayed the same since they formed. There's some kind of process going on there that seems to have replaced the methane on the surface. And in Hmm. order for that to happen, it requires temperatures about... 150 degrees Celsius, which is 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously way hotter than we'd expect way out past Neptune, where the sun just looks like another star. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's a lot hotter than I thought you were going to say. Usually, <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, oh, they're a little bit warm, warm relative. Oh, but um, what kind of process might be causing that all the way out there? <laughs> so there's two ideas. To me, the more exciting one is that there's some sort of hydrothermal process going on. And hydrothermal means water, so that would mean that these tiny objects have oceans beneath their icy shells, or at least they have had them at some point. That would be incredible if they had oceans. Yeah, it would be pretty amazing, even though they'd be more like lakes or maybe ponds, (laughs) given the size. (laughs) Um, And the other idea, a little less exciting, same thing, no water. It's just underground heating deep within the rocky cores. But either one is really unexpected. That's so cool. And in the meantime, we are also going to get a closer look at a different small body, the asteroid Bennu. And that's not in the Kuiper Belt, but it's much closer to Earth. And it being so close to Earth allowed us to send a mission to collect samples, which are returning to Earth this weekend. Is this Christmas in September for planetary scientists? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, The OSIRIS-REx mission launched back in 2016, and it's already returned a lot of data on Bennu, which is great. But it's also got a bunch of asteroid dirt that it's bringing back, which we should be able to learn a whole lot from. And a big part of that is that Japan had a similar mission to an asteroid called Ryugu, and that one also returned samples. So now scientists are going to be able to compare samples from those two asteroids, which should tell us a ton about asteroids and maybe also planet formation. As we see NASA sending missions to Europa and other big bodies, you know, there's a Venus mission in the works. What is sort of the logic and the excitement of these smaller bodies? Like, how how do you explain the fact that little things are cool, too, when we're looking at the solar system and how it came together? Yeah, I think it's it's maybe one of those areas where size isn't everything. Although, obviously, these small bodies are a lot less complicated than the big ones. But as we saw with Eris and Makemake, they're still more complicated than we expect. So if we want to understand the solar system as a whole, we have to understand the big stuff and the little stuff. And often the little stuff early in the solar system came together to become the planets and larger things. So in order to understand the planets, we have to also understand the asteroids and the dwarf planets. Now on to life form of the week. It's a gelatinous one that's smarter than we give it credit for. Wildlife reporter Corinne Wetzel is here to tell us more. Yes, so there's new evidence that jellyfish can learn, which is pretty surprising because they don't have a brain, at least not a traditional one. Oh, well, that is surprising. I would have thought that having a brain is a prerequisite for learning. 
Same, which is what makes this such a cool discovery. So most animals that we know can learn are more complex, things like mice or primates, even humans. And scientists have different ways of testing learning. So one of the ways that they commonly do that is looking at how animals learn to avoid something unpleasant. So you can think of this kind of like burning your hand on a hot pan and being more careful next time once you associate that pain with the, with the hot pan. And that's one kind of learning, which is a type of learning humans definitely do. And we've also seen other advanced brain-having life forms do this kind of learning. How do you, with jellyfish, even test if they can learn? So this species of jellyfish is a little fingernail-sized species that lives in mangrove swamps in the Caribbean. They're called Caribbean box jellyfish. So scientists designed an experiment that sort of mimicked their wild habitat. They took a large tank and they painted gray and white stripes on all the tank walls that sort of mimicked what faraway mangrove roots would look like. Okay, so they mimic what faraway mangrove roots looked like, but the walls were actually much, much closer. So this is an illusion, which... That seems like a pretty mean trick to play on someone who doesn't even have a brain. <laughs> right. So at first, the jellyfish were bumping into the walls like crazy, as you could expect. But within a few minutes, they started pivoting away from the walls and avoiding the stripes pretty effectively. In less than 10 minutes, the jellyfish cut their crash rate into the wall in half, which suggested that they were learning where the stripes were and avoiding bumping into the tank walls. That's really neat. But if they don't have a brain, how are they learning? Like, where is this all happening physiologically in their body? One of the theories is that a part of their nervous system that holds their eyes is doing the learning. And jellyfish have four sight organs called ropalia embedded in their bodies, each of which has six eyes. So we're talking about 24 eyes in total. I can't even imagine having 24 eyes all over my body. <laughs> I feel like the the experience of the world would be vastly different. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. And we're not actually sure how this is happening. It seems these eyes are controlling swimming motion somehow. They're sensitive to light. Sort of like how in our nervous system, there's a really high concentration of neurons in our brain. These areas in the jellyfish nervous system are pockets of tons of neurons and neural activity, which is another clue that these are involved in learning. And do these researchers think that other jellyfish could learn too? Or is it just these wild 24-eyed fellas? <laughs> yeah, well, they actually think other jellyfish can probably do this too. They haven't tested it yet, but they plan to do that work in coming years. So hopefully we'll, we'll discover if other jellies can do this. It's probably not something all jellyfish can do. There's species, for example, that are nocturnal that might not use sight at all. So uh, yeah, that remains to be seen. So it sounds like the next step is to play a lot more mean tricks on, on brainless jellyfish. I'm afraid <laughs> so. <laughs> Thanks, Corinne. Thanks. We can't leave without talking about some of the other fascinating stories in science and technology from this week. First up, a new kind of vaccine that works in the opposite way that vaccines normally function. So instead of teaching your immune system which invaders to attack, this reverse vaccine says, forget you ever saw anything, which could help people with autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis or type 1 diabetes, where their body is attacking their own cells. That sounds incredibly cool, but I have so many questions about <laughs> how it works. Yeah, it's really interesting. So basically, your body already has a mechanism for telling the immune system that a particular cell isn't a threat. Whenever cells die, their surfaces develop a pattern that acts as a kind of out-of-service sign. And that out-of-service sign is what this vaccine uses. So attach it to one of the molecules in your immune system that is being wrongly attacked, and voila! And in mice injected with this vaccine, it showed signs of suppressing symptoms of multiple sclerosis, 
Plus, it had the added benefit of not stopping their immune system's capacity to fight real infections. And the Mm -hmm. team doing this research has also found signs of efficacy in non-human primates. So are we anywhere near actually having a useful vaccine for humans? Well, that's always the kicker, right? (laughs) There's some skepticism that this reverse vaccine can be made to work at scale. You know, there's a lot of different molecules that our bodies might be attacking in diseases like MS. And so one critique is that every person's autoimmune disease may be too different for one vaccine to work on everyone. All right. So my turn. There is a really cool story out about the earliest evidence of human ancestors building wooden structures in Zambia nearly half a million years ago. Wow, that is really old. (laughs) What kind (laughs) of structure are we talking about? Yeah, it's super old. And in this case, the research team was excavating a site near Colombo Falls in northern Zambia. And the first thing they found there was a preserved wooden tool, maybe a digging stick, which already would have been exciting because there aren't that many sites where wood is actually well preserved. And then as they kept digging, they found two very large logs that had been shaped with these notches that create this kind of sturdy joint. So I I feel like if you ever played with like Lincoln logs as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know how those things stack. So the team has speculated that these two logs could have been part of a larger wooden shelter or maybe another permanent structure like a raised walkway. This area used to be a floodplain and, you know, maybe people would have wanted a, a walkway over the flooding at various points. So when I think about human ancestors from half a million years ago, I don't think about building things like wooden shelters or even staying in one place long enough to do renovations. (laughs) Don't we think they were a lot more nomadic at that time? Yeah, that was the general understanding, especially since these structures predate Homo sapiens and in fact probably belong to a species more like Homo heidelbergensis. But these logs could be evidence that even pre-sapiens, some of us were settling down and starting to make changes to our environments. As one of the research team members says, it's possible the Stone Age was much more of a wood age. I like that. Okay, one (laughs) last one. How many cells do you think the human body has? I'm going to go with 425. Close, but add 28 to 36 trillion for the average adult woman and man, respectively. All right. It totally makes sense that the number would be very large. Cells are small. We're big. But how do you actually go about calculating it? I'm not assuming that some poor medical student got stuck counting every single cell in their cadaver or anything like that. Uh, Well, thankfully, no. But it did take a lot of math. Uh, A team of researchers in Germany and Canada basically looked at existing papers about the types and numbers of cells in particular body tissues. Over 1,500 different studies looking at more than 400 known types of cells in 60 different tissues, and that includes skin, muscles, nerves, and so on. Think of it as a massive biological inventory process. Was there anything surprising about this number or how the cell types were distributed in the body, for example? Yeah. So they also looked at the mass of different cell types and how that compared to their abundance, how many big cells versus how many small cells. And the surprising thing for the team was that if you totaled up the mass of all the big cells in the body and then totaled up the mass of all the small cells in the body, those masses were the same. So it's this interesting sort of inverse relationship where the bigger a cell is, the less abundant it's likely to be. And that's all for this week. We are wishing everyone a happy equinox this weekend, whether you're celebrating spring in the southern hemisphere or maybe dreading the inevitable gloom of darkness and winter as we hit autumn in the north but I won't tell you how to feel about that. I know how to feel about it. Fall is lovely. I'm enjoying it. But thanks so much to everyone for listening, wherever you are. 
You can find all the great journalism we talked about today in the show notes. And you can subscribe to the podcast in whichever app you're listening on. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.